Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, hello, welcome, and thank you all for coming. Uh, welcome to the Royal Academy uh, Festival of Ideas. So it's part of the uh, RA's 250th anniversary, uh, as, I'm sure, as, as I'm sure you all know. So I'm Georgina Godwin, and I'm joined here by Franny Moyle. Now, she has probably done more for the public discussion of art than any other woman in Britain, I think. Wow, uh, <laughs> that's a big claim. Well, it's because her, her career in arts programming for the BBC culminated in her becoming the corporation's first commissioner for arts and culture. So not only did she ensure that we were able to watch first-class programmes on television, she also wrote one of them. Uh, her first book, Desperate Romantics, The Private Lives of the Pre-Raphaelites, was adapted into the BBC drama serial Desperate Romantics. This is what the book looks like, just in case you want to pick up a copy, which you can do later, and she will be signing uh, copies of all of her books. Um, her second book, Constance, The Tragic and Scandalous Life of Mrs Oscar Wilde, was published in 2011, again to great critical acclaim. And then in 2016, she released The Extraordinary Life and Times of J.M.W. Turner. Uh, she is therefore, I think, perfectly placed to discuss the art of biography and the challenges of writing about well-known artists. Um, Franny, thank you so much for being with us. We've got some slides, so I might just uh, put one up here. But um, you have been writing about well-known artists for a very long time. Because, in fact, your degree was in art history. Yes, it, it was, English and art history, yes. But you didn't go into museums? No, I didn't. And, uh, you know, of, one always wonders why one makes sort of choices at particular times. But um, I suppose right from that moment when I left college, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to be an evangelist for the arts. Uh, find ways of sharing my own personal enthusiasm for uh, painting and the visual arts with the widest possible audience. And at that time, for me, it was really about going into telly. I was, you know, I love telly. And I'm not saying for a moment to those curators who are in the audience that that isn't exactly what curators do. But for me, back at that moment in the late 80s, the idea that I might be able to make programmes and films and speak in one go to millions of people on subjects I was devoted to seemed like a dream. So I set my career off on that course. Mm. And television, of course, offers us this expanded medium through which to see the lives of artists. But the way that books have examined the life and, and work of some of our greatest painters, I think, have, it's changed over the years. And I wondered if we could look at that, look at the way that the role of biography has, has altered, I suppose, across the ages. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to just briefly have a think about art and biography because I'm not entirely convinced that artists have been at the centre of the sort of biographer's lens. Uh, you know, quite often his other, other historical figures are, but there have been some really momentous and important um, artist biographies. And of course, the first great one, of course, was Vasari. Uh, in his lives of the artists, you, you know, back in the 16th century. And I think um, 
What's interesting is sometimes uh, art, artists and their biographers serve one another's agendas. Mm. I think Vasari is such a great example of this in the moment of the Renaissance when the artist wanted to be seen uh, in a different way, no longer an artisan, but an intellectual, someone who could uh, uh, occupy great fame, be seen um, uh, as a genius. And Vasari comes along and enables artists to be seen in that way through, through in the manner in which he writes about them. And of course, I think uh, the legacy of that group of artists he, he writes about is entirely entwined with that book. Um, you know, you then leap forward to uh, another great book. I mean, it's not technically a biography because it's technically fiction, um, but that would be the wonderful book about Van Gogh that Irving Stone wrote um, in the 1930s. And again, this was a, a book that I think in terms of uh, the arts punched way above its weight. I, I mean, I think a lot of people will concede that the massive popularity of Van Gogh today was significantly aided by the Irving Stone book about his life, the subsequent film in the 50s starring... Uh, Douglas, but it was because there was a wonderful synchronicity, I think. At that moment um, in the 30s, um, I think people were ready for a new way of looking at artists from a deeply personal uh, point of view, from um, uh, where their lives and their art are absolutely speaking to one another. And that book enabled uh, uh, and amplified that uh, vision of Van Gogh and how his life and work are so aligned at just the right moment. So I think there are these, you know, I think art and biography, they have moments when they serve one another really well. Mm, and they are very much biographies are of the moment too. I mean, yeah. those Renaissance books yes. compared to the more recent, of entirely course. different, you, have different you, purposes. Of course, and yeah. you can't read them today except as sort of historical artifacts in a way and actually it's a very long time since I went back and read the Irving Stone I'd be interested to see if it holds up but but never the, but nevertheless it had its moment and mm. just and it served that artist particularly well at that moment yeah well I'd like to bring in Turner now finally um, because obviously you you're a, a huge expert on him you've published this wonderful wonderful book he has been written about many times before though with lots of different results Yes, um, I, it was funny when uh, I was I was right when I was in the process of writing the, the biography of Turner. I was rather sort of stalled one day when I was chatting to someone and they said, "What are you doing, Franny?" And I said, "Oh, I'm working on Turner." And they went, "Gosh, do we need another biography of Turner?" And I was sort of slightly panicked by that. And of course, of course, we do because of course every writer um, one hopes brings a different kind of storytelling and. You know, what I hope is people come to my work uh, not just for the subject, but for the way in which I write. But in Turner's own time, if you look at the... I thought it was quite interesting to look at how the Victorians treated him. And on the slide, actually, you've got here is Turner's self-portrait that he painted on, on the cusp of the 19th century in, a, in, a, in about uh, 1800. Um, he painted this rather romanticised portrait of him himself. 
And then after his death um, in uh, the 1850s, um, uh, an artist called uh, Arthur... It's not Arthur Havel, is it? It's... Uh, I'll just remind myself. Alexander McInnes um, went and actually painted the, the house he was found in at his death at Mrs Booth's house on Chelsea. And you see... His, his version of Turner, rather scruffy little figure coming out of the door. You can see a rather sort of dishevelled property with chickens in the road. And these two paintings were, made me think of the two very different versions of Turner that writers were promoting at the time of his death. On the one hand, there was Ruskin, John Ruskin, the great uh, advocate for Turner, who although he never wrote a full biography of Turner. Um, he wrote uh, certainly a, a, an essay, The Boyhood of Turner, and of course his, he refers to Turner throughout modern painters and throughout his work. And here he paints uh, a very romanticised uh, version of, of Turner um, where he tries to um, equate... The, the, what he sees as the sort of grand, moral and deeply spiritual elements of Turner's work within a life. And he sort of tries to fit a bit of a round peg into a square hole or a square peg into a round hole in that, you know, Turner's life really didn't operate like that. But he writes this very romantic uh, story of the boyhood where Turner comes from darkness into the light, you know, where he leaves the grubby London and finds landscape. On the other side, when Turner died, um, a journalist called Walter Thornbury had a go at writing a, a, a life of Turner. Um, and you get the sort of flip side, if you like, of the what I think we might recognise as the Victorian personality. You, you know, romanticism on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, you know, the era of journalism, of interest in... Uh, uh, you know, the lives of others, the sort of Dickensian version. And, and Walter Thornbury tried to do what would be much closer, I think, to um, a, a, a modern biography, far from being romanticised. You know, he tried to speak to everybody, he, uh, but, but he pulled his punches. When he realised that the life of Turner was a bit more complicated um, from, uh, you know, given the sort of... Uh, expectations perhaps of Turner's audience he pulled his punches a little bit but in a way those are those are were pictures to try and illustrate those those two biographies in that Victorian moment and Ruskin had his own agenda as well didn't he really? well Ruskin I think you, you know Ruskin wanted to make Turner's life fit in with what Ruskin felt about Turner's paintings mm. and where it didn't quite fit you know he would sort of manipulate, uh, manipulate. Uh, I don't mean he would alter facts, but he would interpret facts in a particular way. Of course, Ruskin did have a complete crisis when he realised that it just wasn't going to work, you know, when he actually, in, in the process of doing a huge inventory and catalogue of Turner's work after Turner's death, Ruskin was tasked with this and he was going through all the sketchbooks. And increasingly, as he came across what we would today call erotica, uh, you know, these weren't conventional nude studies. Um, so Ruskin could not, could no longer uh, align what he wanted Turner to be and the evidence in his hands. And, you know, he really did have a, a complete sort of crisis at mm. that moment. 
What do you think the modern reader's stand is on objectivity uh, and on, I suppose, research, reliability, scholarship, if you will? I think scholarship is fundamental. You, you know, I think we all now expect total accuracy and a huge amount of research from our biographers. But I think, uh, and that is quite right, the biography is a factual process. Um, but what I would argue is that that must never be at the expense of the ability to tell a story. Because I think engagement and finding ways of presenting uh, factual information in uh, a pleasurable and compelling reading experience is really important. And so I would argue, cautiously, that that is perhaps the difference between an academic who may, might approach... Of course, though, you see, I'm already rowing back on this. I can already feel the sort of... But, but, but you know, and, and someone who comes uh, at it as a, a writer... Mm. Um, of course, the two aren't mutually exclusive, but they can be. Yeah. I wonder what your personal approach is, because reading these books, and you think, oh, it's three books, I haven't got time to read them all, I'll just skim. And they were so readable that it was very, very difficult to skip ahead. You thought, I, just, I want to actually sit and read all of this, because they're beautifully told. And I just wondered where you come at this whole process. I, I do a lot of plotting of, you know, once I have the, the full facts or... You never have the full facts. That's what you realise when you're a biographer. The minute the book's out, you'll pick up a journal and some really irritating little <laughs> nugget of truth will have been uncovered in some dusty museum. Having said that, when you've got all the facts you're going to get in your timescale, you know, I spend a lot of time plotting a narrative arc. You know, I don't distort truth, but I find the jump-off points. I work out where I'm going to put my emphases um, you know, which are the characters who, that, that, that are going to tell this, you know, are going to be on the journey with me. Um, and it's not a science. You know, I have to be honest. It is just uh, uh, my sense of, of what will keep people reading, where I want people to be left on a... You know, I always try and leave people on a little bit of a click, cliffhanger mm. so they'll want to come to the next chapter. I don't want them to sort of stop and think... Oh, I don't know whether I'll come back to that for a while. You know, I, don't, you know, I want people to feel compelled to move on. It's exciting, it's plot-driven, but of course there's also huge, huge amounts of research. I mean, more probably than you can use. Vast, yes. And that's the terrible, terrible um, trial for a biographer. I mean, in all the books I've written, I've had to cut loads, loads of words, 20,000, 40,000, you know. How, how do you... I mean, what makes the cut? It's terrible. You just have to sort of grit your teeth and, and do it, guided sometimes by, by your editor. Um, and you just have to, again, apply those rules. You just have to sort of, what's important, what's nice to have, what must I have in, what can I let go? You know, and quite often it's subsidiary characters. I mean, my great um, failing as a writer is I get so interested in all sorts of things. I can explore a cul-de-sac in enormous detail. I can take a reader off on a great big journey because I'm loving it. And then actually, it, because there are so great 
so many great characters in Turner's life. So I can suddenly spend an awful lot of time with a particular patron because I think that patron is particularly interesting. And then you sort of look at the book and you think, oh gosh, well, I've spent, you know, 5,000 words on this small episode in his life. And so that's perhaps the cut, you know. So you do that. The other thing I would say for me, um, storytelling is also in. has to be inherent in the subject for me, the ability to tell a story about them, i.e. I must feel there is a a narrative within their own personal story um, that uh, is there for me to take up. Now, most extraordinary people have extraordinary lives, but not all, you know, Some people just don't. Some people are great and famous, but actually quite dull or, you know, never left Greenwich or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, And therefore, they would not, I would not select them. You know, I do look for stories and moments in history where I feel there is really something that I can sort of get my teeth into, that I know that there will be a narrative I can work with. Um, and I suppose the other thing is, um, I think I mentioned this to you, Georgina, I, I, I always do the sort of value of ignorance sort of test. I mean, I feel I'm reasonably well-informed. You know, thank you, mum and dad. I'm quite well-educated and, um, uh, and read history of art and so on and so forth. So I feel my grasp of history of art and history in general is pretty good. And I've been avidly... So if there's something that feels a territory that I don't know much about or feels that it's underwritten to me, feels an area that needs more exploration, I'll be guided by that. In my own ignorance, ironically, is quite often what leads me to delve into a subject further. And the test for me is, well, gosh, if I find this fascinating and if I'm saying, well, I didn't know that, and how surprising and who knew, then my instinct is... That, that will be the same for my readers and they will want, therefore, to come to the subject. You described it in the past to me also as digging about in the mud. Yeah, well, <laughs> there, is, there is quite a, a lot of um, digging around in the mud. I, I, I mean, one of the great uh, advantages for um, a, a biographer working in the internet moment is that suddenly you have stuff at your fingertips in a way that, you know, I don't know what anyone doing my job 30 years ago would have done. You would have just... I mean, I sit in a lot of libraries, I'm telling you, looking through sort of file, uh, you know, paper file indexes. But today, one can get so much from great universities, from other libraries, primary resources, facsimiles, newspapers. You know, both with uh, Constance and with Turner, of course, this is the era of newspapers. And now most newspapers are, um, or, or a huge number of newspapers, going right the way back to the earliest newspapers in the 18th century, have been digitised somewhere. And you can do word searches, you know, for Turner or Mrs Oscar Wilde. And suddenly this whole world of events, of notices, of adverts, of all sorts of things come up. And, you know, that for a biographer is amazing. Mm. And you've come up with a lot of new stuff in, in this book on Turner. I'd, I'd like to look at, at some, of, some of the things that, that, that you found there. I mean, for instance, accounts of his death were very, very different, particularly in, in Ruskin's uh, version of the story. What really happened as far as you know? 
So um, everyone knew that Turner died in Mrs Booth's house in Chelsea. That is a well-reported fact that every other biographer has uh, made good account of. But I, you know, the one thing I do is never take anything at face value. I go over everything again. And um, a, a lot of the rummaging around in the mud is not just taking one account, but looking at every other possible source that might shed light on that one moment. And I can spend, you know, what might make two pages in a book or ten pages, I might spend three months, you know, just because niggling away, just trying to find out a bit more. And with Turner's death, what I discovered by reading around, reading uh, really the letters between Ruskin and his father, reading other uh, letters between royal academicians, and um, reading uh, letters from Turner's lawyer, and reading newspaper accounts, <laughs> gradually I began to build up a picture that what, what actually happened was just a bit more complicated than him dying in Mrs Booth's house. He did die in Mrs Booth's house in Chelsea. Uh, and when the royal, uh, when his executors, his, his cousin, who is his lawyer, was the person who uh, was there shortly after his death and alerted his executors, when the executors found out, they were horrified. They were horrified that he was in Chelsea rather than his house in Queen Anne Street, which was his official address and studio, because they felt there was a degree of shame, you know, caught, caught with your mistress, sort of in a slightly rather charming by our standards, but by, you know, it wasn't Mayfair, darling. You know, um, and um, they went into this blind panic uh, and, and secretly moved the body back to Queen Anne Street uh, to try and sort of hush it all up. But then the Royal Academy found out about it and there was a huge debate uh, about whether his body could lie in state at the Royal Academy or not. That was normally something... Here. That, that was something normally reserved um, for the president, but because he had been such an important member of the academy, some of the academicians felt he should lie in state. But then this whole thing about Mrs. Booth came up. So there was all this stuff about we can't possibly. And uh, he ended up lying in state, but at Queen Anne Street. And I then discovered this re really sweet thing by going through all the newspaper reports that... Um, you know, I tracked when the newspapers started to get news of stuff, and it was about a month after he died, the reports of how he might have ended up in Miss, Mrs Booth's house began to emerge, and they were all slightly misinformed. You know, they got the, either the place wrong or the name wrong, or they said that, you know, he turned up and she let him in, and... and given he said he hadn't got any money, she said he could stay for free. Or, you know, there was all sorts of sort of just not quite right sort of caricature reporting, which was a fascinating insight into journalists getting a rumour and not being able to stand, mm. the, stand the story up, or, 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 when asked, people trying to dampen it down. So from this one moment that a lot of people have just said he died in... Booth's house, I actually uncovered this whole drama, a sense of scandal, you know, people being in a panic, what to do, where can we put him, how can we possibly keep all this quiet? And it revealed a lot about the moment in which he, in which he died, you know. You also um, correct past claims about his uncle. Well, yes. It, 
we know other biographers have um, quite rightly uh, pointed out that he seems to have fallen out with his uncle. And they normally rely on a passage in the diary, uh, in the journals of Joseph Farrington, who was a, a fellow academician, where Farrington mentions that uh, he'd, he, he'd encountered Tur Turner's uncle. Um, and uh, his uncle moaned that, you know, there was too much RA in, in Turner now, and he, he didn't take, he, he no longer took care of his relatives. And this was really the basis for which most people, uh, quite, quite rightly, had sort of pinned this deteriorating relationship with his uncle. The other thing that, that is known about Turner is um, that he inherited land, though, from, from his uncle. He inherited uh, property uh, down by the Thames. And I was intrigued that if, if their relationship had deteriorated so much, why he might be uh, the inheritor in, in, in his uncle's will. And when I went back to the will, I discovered he wasn't, in fact. And um, I don't know whether people just hadn't looked at it or just, you know, one of those things. But in, but in fact, his uncle didn't leave stuff to Turner. He, his uncle left all that property to his, his wife, his uncle's wife. Um, and Turner went and bought her out. So he obviously had a very strong sense that he should have got that property. And he got the land transferred. He gave her a pension for the rest of her, age, uh, for the rest of her life. She was quite elderly. But when you looked at the value of the pension versus the income Turner managed to get from the, the, the pub and the rentals on that property, he, he, she, 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 she was a good 20 pounds a year short, shorter than what she would have done if she, she had maintained the property under the terms of it had been left her. So he was quite a, you know, he was quite a businessman, Turner, yeah. and, uh, you know, he had a sense that was his grandfather's property, he was going to have it come hell or high water. So it's, these are details. These are tiny, tiny details. And yet for me, quite often, it's in the mud, that you find, the, not the greater revelation, but you get this revelation in nuance because suddenly you realise just how, one, how bad the relationship with his uncle who had brought him up effectively had become, not to be in the will, not even one of the properties. There were three houses and a pub. And two, how he went about getting what he thought should have been his anyway. What did he leave Mrs Booth? And, and tell us more about what you uncover about that relationship. Well, he left Mrs, Mrs Booth um, a, a, a pension. You know, he left us a lump of money. He also left a lot of property in, in that little house, a lot of paintings, uh, sketches, which her son sold at the point when the lease on that property um, ran out. From memory, it was uh, uh, more than 10 years after Turner's death. It was in the 1860s, the lease on, on that house ran out and suddenly a whole load of um, Turner material was on sale at, I think it was Christie's, um, and they, they made quite a lot of money. So there, there was, a, you, you know, there was not only the... Uh, bequest in a will, but there was also, um, if you like, in-kind st stuff left with, with Mrs Booth. Mm. A lot of people have written about his mother who was incarcerated in a, in a 
asylum and, and have indicated that Turner was callous, that she was cast off to the state care. But again, you come up with a different take on that. Yes. I, I mean, again, there is this um, tendency in the story of Turner to say, you know, that he and his father sort of dumped her in... Uh, well, there were two important lunatic asylums, public lunatic asylums um, in London at the time. Uh, and she went to one and then she went to the other, uh, the latter being, you know, the notorious Bedlam. Um, and again, when I went back and looked in the Metro London Metropolitan Archives, what I discovered is it was almost impossible to just dump people in these places. Actually, they were massively oversubscribed, hugely oversubscribed. And getting patients, particularly with what seemed to be her apparently incurable status, if you were curable, it was easier to get in. If you were deemed not so curable, the, the, these institutions really didn't want you. What was wrong with her? No one really knows. I mean, there is no proper record, ang you know, anger issues, I don't know, a massive personality disorder of some sort. One doesn't really know, but the, the, the indications are that she, she had become violent. Um, uh, I don't know. But, but what is interesting is I then traced the process Turner went through uh, in terms of lobbying his connections um, to get her in, first to St Luke's and then into Bedlam. And what is evident is that this took a huge amount of string pulling uh, on his behalf. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, it was, you, you know, they still might have been effectively getting rid of her. It still may have been an act of callousness. But what it wasn't was just like sort of driving up, opening the door and pushing yeah. someone out. This was uh, a process that took a huge amount of time and effort to get her into these public institutions. So what I think I took away from that was, um, you know, it's complicated. You know, this, these were complicated times and people resorted to, um, you know, whatever measures they could to do the best for their family. And he certainly, as I say, pulled every string he possibly could. In fact, Without a doubt, the doctors had their arms twisted to admit her, even though she was technically considered incurable. You, you come up with some quite negative things about Turner, and I wonder if, as a, uh, as a biographer, if it's necessary to like your subject. And, and if you don't, how does that affect the reading experience? I think this is a really tricky question, because I, I think you do... You do have to be totally engaged with your subject. You do have to get behind their eyes. You do have to sort of occupy the, them in some way, their personality. But Turner is not always likeable. And, you know, in Desperate Romantics, Rossetti, not always likeable. You know, these are characters who sometimes you're with them and... You know, the art is so wonderful. Their determination, their work, their ethic is so impressive. You just think, oh, yes, Turner, what vision, what... 
And then you hear about something or other and you think, oh, you know, that was rude. Or, you know, with Rossetti, I roll, not again, really, please. You know, and um, I think it's, it's, it's like all these things. You, you love them when they're great and when they're villainous or, uh, y- you, know, not, you know, not so great. You have to take that as part of the drama. You know, we all love a villain as well. And I, I kind of think you just have to go with both. But for me, what it is important is to have... Uh, a real personality, you know, going beyond the land. But it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking of writing about William Beckford, actually, as, uh, who I find a very compelling subject. He was the, the great patron of Turner, um, once known as the richest man in Britain, fled, the, fled to the continent after a deeply dreadful sexual scandal came back, built Fonthill Abbey, was a real eccentric, but a troubled and difficult person. And I was wondering, I, was, I remember discussing this, and the person I was discussing said, yeah, but isn't he just awful, Franny? Isn't he just awful? Can you, can you find a way to live with him? And I was struggling with this. But I then discovered a scrapbook that Beckford had compiled as a, as a, 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 a more senior man, And it was a scrapbook about injustices against homosexuality. And he'd been cutting little things from newspapers throughout his life and keeping a record of injustices. And the moment I knew that was there, I knew I could write about him, not that I've done it yet. So it's that sort of light light and shade. I think there has to be something redeemable somewhere. Well, one person that your work has made me really, really admire, and in fact this speaks to to what Beckford was collecting, uh, is Constance, Constance Wilde. So wonderful, wonderful book that you've written uh, about her here. Uh, And it's uh, the, the, the tragic and scandalous life of Mrs. Oscar Wilde. And what, of course, this also does is show us how the biography of one person can impact on the, on the life of another. Yeah, and I think this is something about biographers are perhaps at their most successful when they chime with their eras. You know, there is a, there is a moment now when we are looking back at history through not just a male lens, but we are trying to reclaim women from history, women's points of view from history. And Oscar is someone, of course, who is much written about, but his wife hardly at all. So at this moment in time, you know, uh, in the sort of 21st century, it feels very important that we can go back and look again through a different lens And, of course, Mrs. Oscar Wilde was by Oscar's side throughout his career and throughout his downfall. And in researching her story, what you realise is, again, a lot of the caricatures or legends we have of our great heroes, like Oscar Wilde, are not necessarily um, right. They might be right for a moment, you know, when it was important uh, for the gay cause to have a martyr. Very important that Oscar was portrayed in a particular way. But, of course, to a 19th century 
uh, person who was living in the uh, 1880s and 1890s, they would have known Oscar as a married man. Their, his reputation to the vast majority of public would have been uh, as, as part of, you know, this, this married couple, Oscar the married man. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think sometimes in, in looking at uh, associated biographies, you uh, get a chance to refocus the lens a, 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 little, a, a little bit on some of the other characters. Mm. And, and the time. The time is so important, as, as, as you said, incorporating the work of the artist and the time that they were working. I mean, so, for instance, back, back to Turner and, in fact, Beckford as well. I mean, the, I think it was uh, this picture. So this, is, um, this oh, yeah. is the Plague of Egypt, isn't it? And, and your work, uh, your investigative work, shows how important the timing of when yes. this, this came out was. I mean, one of the things I hope that my work as a biographer can, can do is, of course, I don't just look at the person. I look at the person in relation to their time. For me, you know, artists do not work in a vacuum. They work in a moment that responds to their time and, and their environment. And it is, you, you know, in, and in retracing a life, you can sort of be a portal through to that time. And I think it's more and more important uh, for art history that we do remind people of the context in which works were made because otherwise my, you know, I often talk about the millennial generation. I think my children would look at that and think pyramid, Bible, plague of Egypt. Yeah, nice clouds. What do I do with this? What does the, how does this speak to me? However, if I can tell a little bit of context around this painting, I hope that that would enable them to understand, and I'll, I'll do that in a second, uh, the, per, the pertinence of that painting in that moment, and therefore give my children, the millennials, the freedom to then allow themselves to enjoy the painting, if you see what I mean. But this is interesting. This was actually commissioned by Beckford. I was... Um, I was mentioning, and I think it reveals two things if you, when you look at the, the, the history behind this painting. It reveals Turner's relationship with his clients, and then it also reveals Turner's relationship with his time. So this, Beckford had uh, travelled the continent with John Robert Cousins, a very important watercolourist, and actually in his collection, if we could just do the next one, was this wonderful watercolour of a thunderstorm over Padua, um, and the minute you know that that watercolour was in Beckford's collection at the point that Beckford made the commission for the Plague of Egypt, um, and the minute you know that Turner was sketching around that time with Beckford doing estate views, I think what you realise is there was obviously a conversation between the, the, the patron and the artist, a creative collaboration where they look at you know, works, they, they, you know, who knows what the conversation was, but clearly there was something where this favourite watercolour of Beckford suggested a grand biblical um, uh, painting, which has a very similar, if we can flip back to, you know, has a very similar composition with this sort of central uh, piece of architecture, not a dome now, but a, a pyramid, you know, and the storm focusing down on it. 
Um, and this, of course, is a history painting alluding to one of the plagues of the Old Testament visited upon Egypt. But it was also at a moment when Napoleon's uh, Egyptian campaign had just come to an end, when Napoleon was widely seen as, of course, the scourge of Europe and the world, um, and when his army was also visited by plague. So, and, and, and Beckford was also a huge friend, personal friend of, of Nelson. So I think, you know, there are two things that rummaging around in the mud around this painting are revealed. Not only the working relationship, the collaborative relationship of someone like Turner with someone like Beckford, but also when that went on show in Beckford's house or uh, uh, the Royal Academy or so on and so forth, a, a public at that time coming off Napoleon's campaign in Egypt, I think would read that painting slightly differently. I think they would see... Uh, a, a sort of symbolic re resonance with the wars around them. And I think all that is valid, actually, in people coming to that painting today. Mm, mm. And it's not just the times, it's also the, the institutions of the times. So, for instance, right here, I mean, in the, in the 18th and 19th century, and you talk about this in both the Turner book and in Desperate Romantics, uh, it's the Royal Academy, very, very important uh, to, to Turner and indeed to, to many of your pre-Raphaelites. Well, absolutely. Again, doing the millennial test. I think if, um, you know, my children, if, 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 I, if, if I said to them, uh, you know, Royal Academy, how important is that in the story of British art? They would go, well, it's got a great summer show. It does some super exhibitions, super gift shop. And why should they know more? We are, they have been brought up. We're all living in a moment where the art market is international, it's sophisticated, uh, artists can get public funding to develop their work, there are established art schools that they can go to, they can get grants or loans these days to uh, attend this, there's a whole gallery commercial system for them to go into, there is a system of public funding that they can benefit from. But of course in Turner's day, there were no public galleries. Galleries were private, galleries were owned by wealthy people where they literally showed their collection, great or small, of works. You know, the very first public galleries were at Dulwich and then the National Gallery, and that was in the early 19th century. Art wasn't easy to see. It wasn't easy to see uh, paintings in the flesh unless you had access to doors of the great country homes or the great townhouses of, of Britain. And so the royal... And, and neither were their schools. There were very few art schools and, you know, those that there were obviously were commercial ventures. And if, if you were poor, you certainly couldn't go. Um, and so I think the Royal Academy at this moment, which was created by artists for artists to train artists where you could, if you were good enough, uh, get your tuition free. You get a professional a professionalization, if you like, of, of your uh, uh, of, of your métier by association with the RA. And, of course, they provided an annual exhibition, an annual selling exhibition. So this institution sort of grabbed art by the scruff of the neck at a moment where, you, you know, artists were massively dependent on patronage. And if you couldn't find your way to Lord so-and-so or a wealthy banker, 
to commission a painting, it was very hard to know where to go. And provided tuition, you can see here, a very early... Um, I was wondering which... Oh, no, this will be in... Um, this wouldn't be here. Sorry. But, the, uh, you know, you could get a, a, a proper training as an artist. You could then go through the system, become an associate and an acad academician. And you also have a forum every uh, year for your work. Your work can go on display to the public as well as to potential buyers. That was incredibly important. And that was something Turner really understood. And he really... Um, despite many frustrations he had with the politics of the RA, and the politics were profound, um, you know, he saw that as very important. And I think it's very easy to lose sight from a contemporary perspective of how different being an artist was in the 18th century and even in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, there were some, of course, that rebelled against the Academy here. Absolutely. about uh, Millet. Yes. Well, and of course, the, you know, the other great thing, you come... To the academy again um, in the 1850s, just as Turner was dying, uh, just as Turner leaves the scene, the pre-Raphaelites come on the scene, and of course, the institution by this time has is is, is not quite a hundred years old, um, and it's time for the first rebellion, and that's what I what I love about, about the pre-Raphaelite story. This great institution, which was so important artists of course it has its own rhythms and the one thing the Royal Academy did in trying to seek a professional infrastructure for artists it also sought to pin down aesthetics what was a good painting what constituted good art and there were you know Joshua Reynolds is credited with with these lectures that, that, that sort of um, pointed what he considered good art and what uh, everyone else, you know, a lot of people went, went along with until the pre-Raphaelites came along and completely challenged this. And this is just, um, you know, a, a great example. I mean, in, in a real nutshell, I mean, if you look at Reynolds' paintings, you have misty, deep backgrounds, you know, with a, a sort of vast, vast landscape going back. You will have a, um, a, a composition in a sort of conventional triangular structure. You will have idealised people, beautiful people. And of course, what Millet does, it, very, very young Jean Everett Millet comes along, forming the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and painting something like this, where background flat wallpaper no vista. Uh, he inverts the traditional um, uh, triangle, puts it the wrong way around and puts a tablecloth in the middle. You know, the people around it are not idealised. They're a, a real ragbag of faces, um, some angular, some attractive, some less so, uh, all drawn on his, you know, from his uh, friends and, and family. And, you know, almost every rule is, is being broken. And, you know, that's great as well. You know, you get these wonderful stories. This is the first great rebellion in British art. Uh, and I think it's also time to talk about sex if we're onto the, onto the, uh, onto the romantics. Um, uh, um, Ophelia, of course, is, is one picture that I know that you have a lot to say about the, knowing the fate of 
of Lizzie Siddle, but, but just sex in general, first of all. <laughs> I think, you, you know, actually, can we just go back to the other slide? I always get really told off for this, but I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to go for it. So you see the leg horizontally pointing towards the dog with his nose in the girl's lap. Look between the leg and the elbow. Okay, we got that? Yeah. Now, I have pointed that out in the past, and I am told this is my problem. Sorry. sorry. Apparently, that is an accident. Apparently, that is just the shadow of his elbow, and the spilt salt cellar is, is coincidence as well. Millet painted a square inch a day on a good day. He painted with the tiniest brushes. He painted with the most intense detail. That passage in that painting would have perhaps taken a week. I am sorry. There is no accident in, in there. This is not me. This was intended. This is a painting that is charged with sexual innuendo. It's the story of Ferdinand and Isabella, who you see Ferdinand and Isabella in, in, in the foreground, in the, uh, Ferdinand in the orange, Isabella in the blue. And they're star-crossed lovers. He, he's from the wrong side of the tracks. And um, he's making love to Isabella. And her brothers, who are immediately opposite, uh, eyeing her up, are jealous. And in a sort of pre-Freudian moment, I think Millet's pinpointing all sorts of things about sexual jealousy and intrigue. Um, and this is a highly, highly controversial and charged picture. And I do not believe that symbolism is an accident. Anyway, Ophelia. So, I mean, I, I think one, ha in my view, one has to embrace the fact that one of the things that the Pre-Raphaelites did at that, at, in their moment was put sex back on the table. You know, perhaps shielded uh, rather thinly by their symbolism. It's pretty blatant. Um, but, you know, this was of interest to them. They were deeply... They were very young men. They were highly sexed. It wasn't just sexuality that I think they felt painting should reclaim. And let's face it, there's been plenty of sexuality throughout the history of art from Michelangelo onwards. But uh, I, I think they felt it was, you know, time to, to, to really put that back on the agenda. But also, the battle, of, not the battle of the sexes, but the issue of sex, particularly mm. the issue of women at that moment. And, and again, you know, I think it's really interesting as, as, a, as a biographer, when one comes across an image like this, there is a great story about how this painting was painted. It's well known. It's well documented. Um, you know, that Lizzie Siddle, who was a hat shop girl, who had sort of been drawn into this circle of charismatic artists, you know, lay in a bath. She got really cold. She was made very, very ill. Uh, and that in itself is fascinating because it, it, it talks about the commitment of both the model and the artist in achieving this wonderful painting. But you also have to ask why does Millet want to paint this particular image right now in this moment in the 1850s? And this was a time when women did drown themselves in the Thames, when there was a huge crisis um, 
uh, it was the moment when uh, Britain stopped being a majority rural country and became a majority urban country. It was a moment when women were coming in from the land and trying to find a, 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 a living in the industrial city and failing to, quite often being uh, taken advantage of, and were quite often left completely destitute. And the Thames became their sort of escape. And drowning in the Thames was a real, real issue. So again, I think that a lot of Victorians would have looked at this painting and seen something of that. Mm. Of course, Millet could not have known when he painted this that Lizzie Siddle would ultimately commit suicide. And that's just a, a biographer's gift, you know, that one can then apply this irony, tragedy of life, again onto this painting. And, it, 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 you know, the painting begins to um, absorb all these sort of resonances. Um, I'm very conscious that we, we need to leave some time for questions. And in fact, we're running out of time. But very briefly, I would love you just to tell us about what you're working on next. So I'm working on Holbein frying pan fire, um, you know, just having become really expert on uh, 18th and 19th century art, I just decided to completely dive into a territory that I don't know that much about, but I'm learning about quickly. And again, I did it because of ignorance. I uh, look at Holbein um, and realise that I think it might have been Ruskin who said the two great uh, narrators of Tudor and Elizabethan England were Holbein and Shakespeare. And in Holbein, every image we have, I think, of the Tudor court, he has given us. Um, and so, and yet... I suspect people don't know that much about him. There's been very little written about him in a sort of mainstream sense. And yet this was a marvellously turbulent moment, rather pertinent to right now, when, of course, England was isolated from Rome, when uh, Henry VIII had created a new kind of nationalism, a new religion, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, he hadn't created a new religion. You know what I mean. That you know, he had he had broken from Rome. He was trying to find a way uh, for a new Church of England, and of course, he was uh, his court was a, a tempestuous and dangerous place. And um, just a, a you know a, a little thing about Anne of Cleves, always known as the Flanders Mare, always her fault. You know, I always feel she's the woman that's blamed, not pretty enough or, you know, not sexy enough, so he, he didn't like her and uh, divorced her. But, but actually, this was the painting that Holbein made um, to show Henry what she looked like. And everyone, all, all the diplomats around Holbein d describe how very faithful the painting is. And in, in covering uh, and in looking at the origins of this painting and, and the astonishing lengths that Holbein and uh, the ambassador Hobie went to get it, you know, I've begun to uncover 
this moment of turmoil in the, in the court where Henry is isolated uh, from Rome, he's isolated from the Holy Roman Empire and the Habsburg dynasty, he's isolated from France. They are actually all uh, beginning to collude against him. Cardinal Pole is uh, encouraging uh, the continental rulers to depose Henry and Cromwell finds this marriage that might just align him to the German princes. And for a man who had uh, uh, up to this moment gone for ladies-in-waiting, surprising for a king, most kings make political marriages, but after Catherine of Aragon he had turned away, this was the political marriage he was being forced to make. And so I've been looking into the enormous sort of political backstory to this, to this painting. Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to sort of share how paintings that, this is in the Louvre, we might too easily walk past, actually uh, kind of hold an enormous story behind, mm. behind them. Well, I look forward to, to reading that one. I know that there's still a lot of work to, to do on it. Yes. Franny, thank wow. you so much. Thank you. Uh, Franny's going to be signing copies of her book uh, just outside in, in the foyer, I think, where we came in. Wherever, yes, um, I don't know. I'll it, just be led. That's right, I think. Um, so just in, in the, um, in the um, Burlington Gardens entrance hall. Uh, Franny Moyle, thank you so much. Thank you for making that so Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.